centuries. And so we're going to be talking about a little bit uh, about uh, our heritage as Bible believers, as Baptists. We're going to be looking at our heritage uh, some and seeing how the hand of the Lord has preserved His churches down through the centuries from the time He established His church. And you remember how we uh, looked into the Scriptures last week and reiterated the truth that uh, the church that Jesus established began there in Jerusalem during His ministry. It was empowered on the day of Pentecost, but it was established uh, during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so it had form and shape and function before the day of Pentecost, and it was something that was in existence, was an entity, was already there uh, when uh, the day of Pentecost came. And so those that were saved were baptized and added to the church, added to something that was already there. And so uh, we uh, certainly want to, um, uh, want to uh, do justice to the, the scriptures and do justice to history as we go down through this, uh, this study, this uh, maybe more of a Bible study, maybe more of a study than a, than a uh, preaching series. But I think it's very vital for us to have uh, an answer to those that ask a question of the hope that lieth within us. And for us to be confident that, uh, you know, we're with all, the, with all the confusion out there and religion, for us to be confident that we're on the right track. And so that's what we're up against as we're dealing with this, God's prevailing work through the centuries. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 18, really uh, hits, on the, uh, hits the nail on the head as far as the issue that has been a predominant issue in the question of... Uh, what a church is, and, and uh, the question of uh, perpetuity, the question of the uh, hand of God on churches. And so uh, the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, crux issues, or probably the most, uh, uh, the most crucial issue as far as what happened as you trace the, uh, the hand of God the down through the ages, one of the most uh, uh, important things was the question of baptism and so we're going to look at that even at the stages early stages of the first century church here in Corinth is one of the churches that uh, is um, uh, is being uh, ministered to by Paul and one of the churches that's having issues concerning the question of baptism already one of the churches that's already having issues with divisions and with the prospect of uh, you know uh, doctrinal Differences creeping in and all those things are already taking place. This isn't something that happened five centuries out, you know, that there was real harmony and unity everywhere uh, Christians were. And then 500 years later, things begin to go this way. Uh, no, it happened from the very beginning because the devil's always been alive and well, and has always hated the local church because Jesus loves the local church. And so uh, here in Corinthians, I want to begin and preface our our little study tonight from uh, verse 10 to verse 18. So let's follow along there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, verse 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye uh, all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. Do you see the call there for unity in the local assembly of believers? See that? I want you to all speak the same thing. I don't want there to be divisions among you, uh, but that ye be perfectly joined together, that there ought to be a real harmony in what you believe and what you practice, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Let's have a word of prayer as we've read the scriptures and ask the Lord to add his blessing and open our eyes to understanding. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture that uh, certainly makes it clear that the heart of the Lord for the local church is for harmony, unity, oneness of mind, oneness in judgment, uh, a, uh, a oneness in direction. And yet here's this church all divided up, all mixed up, all following after men and all uh, messed up on uh, who baptized who and which baptism was the more significant and authoritative and all these type of things. And uh, Lord, uh, I'm glad that uh, you dealt with it early on and helped us to be able to see it there. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to get it and recognize that, uh, that these uh, matters are not just passing matters that happen to take place there in some faraway city a long time ago, but that there's a purpose in that for us to get here today and in 2019 in Temecula, California at Calvary Baptist Church. And in the work of ministry around the world in our generation. I pray you bless now the, uh, the study and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have uh, here uh, the, the Apostle Paul explaining uh, a situation here. And he says, look, you guys are divided up and you're, some of you are bragging on you got baptized by Paul. And oh, you got baptized by Peter and this and that and the other thing. And so um, he's clarifying uh, where the authority of baptism belongs. He said, God didn't call me as an individual to baptize people. That's not my responsibility. That responsibility belongs to the local church, you see. And you see that when he gave us, as we said last week, we talked about the Great Commission as he gave that to the church. Go ye therefore and all will preach the gospel to every creature. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then Thirdly, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I command you, and lo, I'm with you always until the, uh, until the end of the world. And so the uh, perpetuity of churches is established right there where Jesus said, you're going to do this and this and this, and I'm going to be with you all the way until the end of the world, all the way until the end of the world, all the way till the end of the world, till, the, till Jesus comes again and settles it all. So uh, we're, we've, got a, we've got a line going there that Jesus established, and we've got Paul here correcting these people on this question of baptism that they were thinking it was Paul's authority or Cephas' authority or somebody else's authority, but it belonged to the local uh, assembly of believers there at Corinth, and he needed to correct that issue. So we're going to see that as we go along down through here um, in, our, in our little um, time together. We have now the, the Hebrew nation as one entity that we see the Old Testament predominantly about the history of Israel, the prophets of Israel, the poetry of Israel, the, uh, the songs and psalms of the kings of Israel, and 
uh, we certainly see Israel predominant in the Old Testament and that entity uh, called Israel. And then in the New Testament, we see another entity established called the church, you know. But in both Old and New Testament, you have uh, a third group that is comprised of all the rest, all the remainder, all the left, uh, the ones left that aren't Jews are the Gentiles. So all the Gentile nations, out of all those nations and out of the nation of Israel comes a body of people that save both Hebrew and Greek or, or Gentile and then gathered together into churches and these saved persons that are then duly assembled together in, in assemblies of believers are the church, the churches. And so you've got uh, Jews and Gentiles and the church of God, those three entities mentioned in the scripture several times as distinct. And so uh, carrying that uh, theme on uh, through the New Testament, you see the uh, prevalence of the hand of God as the, as the churches are developing. So here we are in the last, we're here where we're reading, you know, somewhere in the last two-thirds of the first century where Jesus has gone to heaven and the church is established and now it's beginning to really flourish and take off after Antioch and the spread of the gospel and the missionary journeys of Paul and Silas uh, and others and Barnabas and others who began to, as the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem to take the gospel to the corners of the world. At that time, you have that really taking off in the first century. So the, you got the, the last two-thirds of the first century, and then here we are in the first one-third of the 21st century, and that thing is still carrying on. The world has, from that time until this, known about churches and known churches. But uh, we need to be able to recognize the, uh, the nature of biblical churches because there's so many things out there, there's so many um, Groups. There's so many organizations out there that refer to themselves as uh, churches, and, and they, you know, in one sense, are. They're an assembly of believers. Uh, uh, they, many of them, are saved people that uh, are in churches that have doctrinal differences from us, but they are saved, and they are going to be our brothers and sisters in heaven. We're going to see them there. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, we, we could use the broader definition of a church and say, yes, there's a lot of churches out there that are distinctly different, though, from, uh, from where we stand. And so the question would come up, well, you know, if there's distinct differences in these various groups, are we in the right place, you know? And if not, we need to find out where we're wrong and get over in the right place. Maybe we should all be Presbyterians, you know? Maybe we ought to all be Lutherans, or maybe we should be Assembly of God, or maybe we should go join Calvary Chapel, or maybe we ought to go over to the Mormon Church, you know, or maybe we ought to be back to the Mother Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, we, need to, we need to know, are we where we're supposed to be? And if so, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because those are going to be some of the questions you and me are going to get asked over and over again. They're going to say, and they've said it to you, well, if, if the Bible's true, why are there so many different religions? Or they'll say, why are there so many different churches that say they're the right church, you know? So, uh, all right, uh, that's the question we're going to try to work on, try to answer in the weeks that we have ahead. 
because I want to have confidence that I'm in the right place. And if I'm not in the right place, I want to go find what the right place is and get in that place, okay? <laughs> so I'm sure you do too. Uh, and that, that's what we're talking about for the next uh, many weeks. We're going to be looking at that. Is there some way that we can have confidence that what we're believing and preaching and teaching is what Jesus and the church of Jerusalem was believing and preaching and teaching and what the church at Antioch was believing and preaching and teaching and what the churches that Paul established were believing and preaching and teaching. Is there some way we can have some degree of confidence that we are on the right track and on the right tack? That's what we're talking about. Last time we looked at the major identifying factors uh, uh, that were there in, uh, in identifying a New Testament church. We recognize too and we admit that the term... You didn't, you're not going to be able to go back in history and, and do archaeological digs and go find signs that once hung on churches that said Corinth Baptist Church, you know. You're not going to be able to go find signs in every era of history where you're going to say, oh, yes, here it is. It's, uh, you know, it's Smyrna Baptist Church. See, it's here, third century, and there's the pastor, and there's the deacons, and, and there's the sign What's left of the sign? Glad they etched it in stone. I got a sign here. You're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to find uh, that uh, the term Baptist as associated with a Baptist church is going to be found on their signs and their identifying markers. But you are going to be able to find identifying markers that indicate there are churches that believe the same principles and practices that we believe and practice as Baptists. Understand something, that the term Baptist was not something we decided to take upon ourselves. It was given to us by our detractors. And so, uh, you know, it's not a name that we chose. The name been been given. So uh, before that, they, as you go back through history, you're going to find numerous different areas where these biblically-oriented churches were called various different things. Sometimes they were called after the name of a prominent leader in their group of uh, believers. So uh, you'll find that. Sometimes they were called after the name of the area in which they, uh, you know, uh, flourished. And so you're going to have a number of things that, uh, you know, come to light as you go back in our uh, little study here, as we go back and go back and go back, and then we work our way forward, you're going to see the uh, the evidences the the signs of um, of churches that did have essentially the uh, same beliefs and practices that we practice today. So we're going to be able to try to uh, make that more clear. We talked last time about the identifying marks. We said the absolute authority of the Word of God that's got to be uh, preeminent. Yet the church the church if it's going to be a church that's like a Baptist church is going to have to ha- identify as the Word of God is absolute and final authority, the only authority, the ultimate authority. Secondly, the distinctive uh, dispensation of the New Testament from the Old Testament, that is a Baptist distinctive. It's different from the Catholics, different from the Presbyterian, different from the uh, Reformation churches, different from the Mormon church, different from any of these other groups. They don't have that same, uh, this same philosophy of the distinctions in covenants between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you're gonna ha- that's going to have to be a distinctive that we're looking for as we go back and try to trace our heritage back. A third one is individual soul liberty. Baptists have always 
always held that individuals are responsible individually to God and that you have the liberty before God to choose to believe or not to believe without any kind of outward coercion. None of you were coerced to be here. You know, we didn't send the deacons out and say, take your 45, go over to Brother Grissom's house, stick it in his ribs again, tell him he's coming to church or we're going to kill him. You know, so none of you were coerced to come. None of us was coerced into Christ, to come into Christ. Our uh, conversions aren't by force. You understand that there's many religious groups that, whose conversions are brought about by the sword, by force. And so uh, individual soul liberty is contrary to all that. Go back in Roman Catholic history and you're going to find massive amounts of coercion taking place, uh, coercion and, and force taking place to, uh, to bring about conversions. Read some of the horror stories of uh, the early Americans as they were, uh, as they, the, uh, the uh, native populations as, as they were exposed to Catholicism and their forced conversions. You're going to read about that in, uh, in Protestant cultures as well. You're going to see it in uh, John Calvin's, uh, you know, uh, Utopia uh, was, a, uh, was a situation where when Calvinism was dominant, Calvinism was the order of the day, and there was not individual soul liberty. That's been a prize. It's been a trophy of Baptists from, the, from time immemorial, from the uh, establishment of the church. So individual soul liberty, that is, that you have the right before uh, God and men to choose what you want to believe and who you want to worship. It is uh, a capstone of our American system. And it is a responsibility of, uh, it, or it is, a, uh, it is a, a gift of Baptist people that the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights, particularly the Bill of Rights, has that uh, tenet in there that we uh, hold that uh, religious liberty is, a, is one of the cornerstones of our culture, uh, religious liberty, the pursuit of, uh, uh, you know, the pursuit of uh, happiness and the, uh, the, the, uh, the personal responsibility and personal accountability, those are all, uh, those are all rooted in Baptist principles, and it, they go back to the concept of uh, individual soul liberty. We also mentioned the priesthood of the believer, that you have direct access to Jesus Christ, direct access to the Father. You don't have to go through the priest or the preacher or anybody else. You don't have to be here at church to talk to God. You have direct access to God. It's, the, it's what we call the priesthood of the believer, and you'll see it in Hebrews uh, as, it, as it is explained there. Now, uh, number five, the separation of church and state. Not the separation of the church from the state, but separation between the uh, authority of the state and the uh, work of the church. The idea that the, uh, the state does not establish one particular uh, Christian sect over some other one, you know, that uh, there isn't a state church. That's the idea behind the separation of church and state. That's the whole concept there. It's been turned completely around and misconstrued by those that don't understand history or don't want to admit the truth about uh, what it means. But those that uh, uh, have a, um, those that are honest in their assessments will all come to the same conclusion that the separation of church and state issues that you uh, hear about in our, regarding our Bill of Rights, our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and Founding Fathers uh, mentality all had to do with the idea of not that, that there would be no establishment of a certain religion 
uh, predominant over another, any other religion in any given state. It's a freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, freedom of religion. So, uh, and the recogni recognizing the value of biblical faith, recognizing the value of the church's contribution to a, uh, to a society's good and well-being, that's all uh, fine and good, but uh, separation of church and state. Now, number six, a regenerated church membership. That is, uh, we do not have members that haven't been saved, you know. That is not so of Catholicism. It's not so of Protestantism. You can be a member of a Lutheran church or a uh, Protestant church of any kind without being saved. You can be a member of the Roman Catholic Church without being saved. You're born into it, you're christened into it, and you're a member before you ever have the uh, good sense to accept or reject Christ. So, so you have uh, the regenerated church membership as a distinctive. If it's going to be a, a church like ours, we're going to have to find that in the, in the accounts of history. We're going to have to find that kind of a church there that only received in the membership saved people, Okay. Uh, and then number seven, we said the, the history of uh, persecutions. We didn't spend much time on this one, but the history of persecutions because of principles and because of practice. That's going to be a characteristic you're going to find in true uh, biblical churches. Jesus told them that from the very get-go. He said, if they persecuted me, watch out because they'll persecute you as well. Uh, if the world loves you, he says, something's wrong if you don't have any persecution, something is wrong. You're not doing something right. You're too quiet. Uh, you're too behind the scenes and so forth. You're not accomplishing the objective that churches have to accomplish because you're going to ruffle some feathers if you get out there and preach the gospel and, and uh, you know, you tell people the truth. If you tell them they're going to hell without Jesus Christ, you're not going to make a lot of people really happy when you uh, tell them that without Christ there is, and that there is no other way and that there is no alternative, a straight and narrow road and all those things, you're not going to win friends and influence people in culture today by that. You're going to suffer some persecution. You're going to be, you know, a sideline. You're going to be passed over for promotions. Things are going to happen that uh, wouldn't happen if you just keep quiet. So, so Jesus said this is going to take place, and the history of the church has been a history of persecutions among Bible believers. I want you to know that Baptists have been distinctly separate from that. They've been on the persecuted side always through the ages, but have never been on the persecutor's side. Baptist people, even when they had places where they were predominant and they were the bulk of the culture, uh, even in uh, circumstances like that, they never practiced persecution or coercion, forced conversions, that kind of thing. It did not uh, occur in uh, our in our lineage so um, that's a distinctive that needs to be there when we're looking for churches that uh, were biblical churches going down through the ages one thing though as i started with one thing more than any other that's bought brought about this persecution is the question uh, and even martyrdom and persecution and martyrdom is the question of the doctrine of baptism and it is so today when you go to the foreign field, you talk to missionaries, they're going to tell you uh, almost uniformly that the persecutions from family and the persecutions from the cultures that they're in and ministering to often aren't nearly as severe at the point of attending a church or even at the point of conversion, salvation, as they are when finally the individual steps out and makes a public profession of faith through the means of baptism. 
And when that occurs, that is the cutoff point for many families where they say, my son's no longer my son, my daughter's no longer my daughter, uh, I uh, no longer uh, uh, claim them, and, and they're cut off from their family members in many cultures at the point of believers' baptism. So, so baptism has always been a, a mark, you know, that's, that sets apart uh, the, uh, the, the genuine believer and uh, shows his commitment to Jesus Christ, his willing to, uh, willingness to obey Christ, and it's baptism, the question of baptism so often that's the dividing line. So when you go down through history, you're going to find that's going to be one of the hot buttons is what uh, they did about baptism. And so uh, uh, why did they get persecuted when they, you know, in 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, why did they get persecuted when they just baptized converts, when they, you know, went out to the lake or river and they immersed converts? Well, one of the reasons why they got so uh, grievously persecuted by the Romanist church was that these converts were very often from uh, out of Romanism and coming into biblical faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than trusting the church of Rome and the pope and the priest, they were tr- or even uh, coming over to a, to a Baptist or a Baptistic church and trusting the pastor. No, they were trusting Jesus Christ. And in identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, they were being baptized in deep water, baptized by immersion, and so uh, persecuted by those that called them Anabaptists, rebaptizers. They were persecuted because of the, uh, of the biblical practice of immersion. They were persecuted because of that. Uh, Baptist baptism is by immersion only. There's no sprinkling, pouring in the Bible. There's no sense in it in the Bible. It doesn't. It is not biblical. Nobody who practices it, who's honest, even admits, even suggests that it's biblical. It's just a tradition. It's a tradition established by men. It does not have any basis in the Scripture whatsoever. It's a false baptism. It is not a baptism at all. It's simply getting wet, getting sprinkled. You know, my mom used to sprinkle the ironing before she ironed it, and that's about all that that is. You know, it's uh, sprinkling your clothes before you iron them. This is all the good it is. So uh, immersion is the biblical form, the only form of baptism that is biblical. Uh, uh, Baptism is for believers only. It's not for little infants and children. It's never in the Bible. Uh, It's never practiced in the Bible on infants, on children that don't understand even the concept, that aren't old enough to even recognize their condition. It's never practiced in that fashion at all in the Bible. So you, if you're going to find a biblical church, you're going to have to find in history one that understands the question of baptism is for those only for those that are born again, that have trusted Christ as their Savior. It's believers' baptism only, believers' baptism. And uh, another distinctive of it is it needs to be ministered by a biblical authority of the local church. That is what Paul was arguing with them here about or confronting them here about that they didn't get it on baptism. They thought uh, they were associating him with their baptism rather than Christ and, the, and his church with baptism. So, so it has to be administered by the correct biblical authority. And, and so all those things led to the, the, um, the enormous persecutions of Baptist churches. Persecutions occurred as biblically-minded churches and biblically-minded pastors rejected the infant baptism because it was the wrong candidate, rejected the sprinkling and splashing and pouring because of the wrong mode, 
and then rejected the baptisms that occurred without any biblical authority, the wrong source. Catholicism was the wrong source. It was a new religion sprung up in the uh, fourth century. Fourth century. It wasn't around first, second, third century. Fourth century. That's all far back it goes. Doesn't go back to Peter, the first pope. Peter had a wife and kids, you know, uh, and Peter was never, uh, never in Rome. So Peter was not the first pope, you know. Um, he's, it's a fraud. It's fake news. Fourth century, remember that, uh, Catholic Church? Fourth century. So first three centuries, uh, not even around. So it's a new church. It's a new religion. Catholicism. Protestantism springs up out of Catholicism in the 15th century, 14th, 15th mostly 15th, some in the 16th century. Uh, so you have Protestantism uh, springing up after that. It's not a biblical, uh, it's not an authoritative biblical baptism. Protestantism has got a lot of good people in it, a lot of saved people, a lot of wonderful people, a lot of uh, preachers and speakers that are excellent, uh, you know, uh, excellent uh, uh, in their exegesis of the scriptures. But when they come to baptism, they skip over it. Uh, or they just say, you know, the Baptists are right and we're wrong on that. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, certainly, yeah, certainly some good people in, in uh, Protestantism uh, who got enough of the gospel, you know, out of the scriptures to be able to recognize that the corruption in Roman Catholicism was so great that they had to either reform that church, which was what they wanted to do, or what they didn't want to do was be separated and isolated out, and that's what happened. They were booted out, they were chased out, they were kicked out, or they had good sense enough to get out, but they all had that uh, desire for the mother church in their mind, the mother church was the Roman Catholic Church. They all had that desire for the Romanists to be reformed. They uh, did not necessarily want to destroy the, uh, you know, Catholicism. They wanted to just reform it. So uh, error begets error, and so into Protestantism come many of the errors of Catholicism. Uh, the idea of the universal church was one of them. The idea of the universal invisible church was the, uh, was the brainchild of the uh, Protestant leaders, because it had to be different from the universal visible church, which Roman Catholic Church claimed to be the universal visible church through which no one could be saved without uh, the Roman Catholic Church. That is, the, still, that is still the theology of Roman Catholicism, that no one can be saved outside of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's not changed, you know. They changed just enough not to change, but it's not changed. That is still the official position of Roman Catholicism, that salvation is in the church. It is not uh, in anything else. It's in the church. So uh, that error uh, was uh, promulgated into Protestantism and, and uh, much of the, uh, you know, much of the sacerdotalism and sacramentalism of Catholicism slipped into Protestantism, including the error in baptism, uh, particularly the error in baptism, was uh, was a dominant one. The error in the uh, the theology of the church was was real prominent, but the error in baptism. Now they did, you know, Martin Luther was wise enough to see the scripture: "The just shall live by faith." He got it. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church just got so 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 corrupt that uh, it was it was just oozing the pus of corruption everywhere out of every pore 
And so uh, Martin Luther was a priest in that, and he saw firsthand all the details of the corruption in Romanism and the wickedness and, and uh, the ungodliness and the, and the uh, immorality of the priesthood and the priests and the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and all of it. He saw it all. He saw the, the lust and the greed and the uh, sexual sin and the immorality. He saw the perversions and the homosexuality. He saw it all and saw how perverse it was and as a man who desired righteousness, uh, wanted to confront the church, and he did that. And, of course, you know the, the, the broader story there, uh, along with, uh, you know, Zwingli in Switzerland, and uh, you had Martin Luther in Germany, and Zwingli in uh, uh, Switzerland, and you had John Knox over in Scotland. Uh, you had Hubmeyer over in, uh, in uh, France. And so you had all of, these, uh, all of these reformers, you know, communicating with each other, and all of them agreeing of the corruption of Romanism and coming out of there. But they just didn't come far enough out. Protestants didn't like the Baptists because the, ba the Baptists were around before either one of these groups were around. They were referred to as heretics. They were the outliers. They were the outsiders. They were the other side of the tracks. They were the ones that didn't have any political influence and any, uh, uh, any power as far as human governments were concerned. But they were always there. So Catholicism had persecuted down through the ages the Baptist people or those that we'll, we're going to discover had Baptist principles in all of their uh, functions as, uh, as churches. We're going to see that as we go on with this. But, uh, but all of those uh, improper authorities were the reasons why these Baptist churches were rebaptizing converts. And it was the reason why they got the name. That's where we got the name from, uh, Baptists. So these groups who, who uh, baptize infant, infants, of course, they're promoting baptismal regeneration, that the water, that the person is, you know, made right with God, is saved in baptism. And so the idea that baptism saves is taught in churches that hold that uh, view of, you know, getting the child to the church and getting him as soon as possible, getting him sprinkled under, and so he'll be safe, so he'll go to heaven if he don't get him sprinkled by the priest, he's going to go to hell. That, that uh, completely unbiblical philosophy is taught in those kinds of churches. Baptismal regeneration is what we call it theologically, baptismal regeneration. We say that those churches teach you're saved, you're regenerated, you're born again. They don't use the term born again, but they say you're, you're made right with God by, by uh, baptism there as an infant. Uh, they also promote, of course, an unconverted church membership. They, they promote baptism without the consent of the candidate. The baby doesn't ha give any consent to that, doesn't know anything about it. Uh, it uh, that kind of baptism always has state connections to it. The uh, Episcopal Church connected to the, uh, the country of England, the Anglican Church, the country of England, the Episcopal Church here in America is the representation of that, but it's still a state a mentality, a state church. Lutheran Church connected to the state of Germany, uh, and so forth here in America, many of the uh, many of the original colonies had state churches. Uh, first one that didn't was Rhode Island, and we'll uh, get into that as we get later in history. But uh, uh, we'll have um, we'll have some interesting things to see there in relate in relationship st state connections. There, um, these groups had uh, that practice uh, practice infant baptism had dispensational confusion and still do, and they dispensationally don't slice it right. You know? So their, their um, covenant theology is mixed up, messed up. Um, their kingdom theology is mixed up, messed up, and is not, is not a biblical one. So again, 
the ones that they were looking at that were rebaptizing and preaching a different, uh, you know, preaching a different message as far as the uh, distinction between the Jew and the Gentile and the Church of God, those churches were considered heretics. And you read in your secular history books, when it talks about the church going after heretics, it's talking about the Roman Catholic Church persecuting the churches that we would identify uh, as Baptist churches. And not, now I'm not saying that all of those the ones that were labeled heretical churches were Baptist churches, but among those that were labeled heretical churches were predominantly those that we would, we would look at and go, we would say, hey, that's us. That's a Baptist church. So, so we're, going to be, uh, we'll, we're going to be able to give you some specific examples as we get into more detail down through the weeks, but uh, this will give you some idea of where we're going. The, these uh, infant baptizing churches also give a marred picture of the gospel because the sprinkling gives no representation of death and burial and resurrection. And that is essential in the uh, picture that is presented from, uh, according to Romans chapter 6. The likeness, uh, the like picture, you know, uh, uh, where, where unto, uh, you know, uh, where, where unto the, uh, the uh, immersion in the water uh, indicates a burial and the uh, taking up out of the water indicates a, a, re uh, a resurrection. So uh, it is uh, certainly clear from, uh, from Romans chapter 6 that the picture is important, you know. And that's not happening with sprinkling, with pouring. The detractors now would, uh, would say to us, those that would take a different position, detractors would argue that you can't look back through history and find a line of doctrinally perfectly pure churches. And we would have to say that is true because they're composed of people. <laughs> so... And people are far from perfect, and pastors are far from perfect. So you're not going to be able to trace back a line of pure-as-the-driven-snow churches that doctrinally were on target in every area back to the time of Christ. You know, we have a problem already because when we first start out, we got the Corinth church, and it is called a church of the living God. It is addressed... You know, in that way, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. So it's the church of God. It's a mess, but it's the church of God. And by the time you get to the end of 2 Corinthians, they've got the thing kind of flying. They've got the wings corrected. They've got the flight path lined up, and they're going the right direction. By the time you get to the end of, uh, of uh, 2 Corinthians, they've taken care of some stuff there. They've handled some things. And so... Uh, you're obviously not going to be able to find an absolutely pure uh, pathway there. There's going to be churches uh, all down through the ages that have that hold our position, uh, but you know you're going to be able, you're going to be able to spot some warts and blemishes on any particular one of them if you look close enough. The same is true of ourselves, isn't it tonight? Um, so we're not looking for as we go down through history, not looking for a perfect church. We're just looking for a church that got it doctrinally, that understood the, uh, the issues that were vital doctrinally as we go down through the ages. Churches and lines of churches which uh, have these identifiable characteristics we've been talking about, we're going to be able to find those. We're going to find that in every era, there were churches like ours, in every era. Uh, undeniably, there's diversities. There's even in some uh, of the groups, there were excesses to be found. But uh, in our forebears, but the uh, fact is that uh, part of that is because of the very nature of our um, our uh, position, our theology of the importance of churches being independent of denominational authority. 
So you don't have that uniformity that you might find in a hierarchical church that has the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and the, the law comes down from the head man, you know, and from headquarters, and headquarters is the pope instead of Jesus Christ. So, so uh, in the independent churches, independent Baptist churches, you're going to have some variation along the way and diversity along the way. That's true in all these eras and all these eras, but you're going to find doctrinal consistency running down through as well. So, um, and bear in mind too, when you're reading history, any history, you're going to often be reading what the enemies of Baptists were writing about them rather than the Baptists themselves. You're going to often be reading about what persecutors were, uh, were writing about Baptists than the Baptists themselves. So they were considered heretics by the establishment church and, and by the state. So keep that in mind as we look at them. Um, we're, we're often linked together with, as the detractors would, would often link together some of these groups with, they'll find the most extremist, you know, heretic in that era, and they will try to link all the rest of those that were labeled as heretics with that extreme. And so that's a, a, a method that's sometimes used in secular historians' accounts. So we have to be on guard for, for that too. So, but down through the ages, you're going to find that we have a, um, we have a remarkable heritage to, to thank the Lord for. And the fact that we have a church here today in Temecula, California, that uh, uh, is, uh, is able to, to worship the Lord in the, in the fashion that we believe the Scripture has guided us to do it is not because of us, but because of many who've, who've paid the price in their life and their blood gone on before us. So I want to close with a couple of, a few quotes from uh, some other historians. These are historians that are, none of them are, none of them are going to read our Baptist historians. They're all other than that, so Catholic and Lutheran and other things. And so um, I want to read what they said in moments of honesty in their writing. Here's Cardinal Hosius. He is a Catholic dignitary who uh, spoke these words at the Council of Trent long back in 1554. He said, if the truth of a religion were to be judged by the readiness and cheerfulness which a man of any sect shows in suffering, then the opinions and persuasions of no sect can be truer or surer than those of the Anabaptists, since there have been none for these 1,200 years past that have been more grievously punished. That's Cardinal Hosius concerning Baptists. Here's uh, Cardinal Gibbons and Patrick Healy, uh, who wrote a work entitled Crossing the Centuries. It's, uh, uh, of course, he's there of Catholic persuasion. He said, of the Baptists, it may be said that they are not reformers. These people comprising bodies of Christian believers known under various names in different countries, entirely distinct and independent of the Roman and Greek churches, have had an unbroken continuity of existence from apostolic days down through the centuries. Throughout this long period, they were bitterly persecuted for heresy driven from country to country, disenfranchised, deprived of their property, imprisoned, tortured, and slain by the thousands. Yet they swerved not from their New Testament faith, doctrine, and adherence. That's Catholic people talking about your Baptist heritage, see. Zwingli, who was a great Protestant reformer and a great man in his own right, he said this in the 16th century, wrote these words, the institution of Anabaptism is no novelty. It's not anything new. He said, but for 1,300 years, 
has caused great disturbance in the church. So, so uh, that's a reform. Mosheim was, uh, and you may even recognize his name, he's a very um, revered historian, a Lutheran historian. He said this, the first century was a history of the Baptist. Before the rise of Luther and Calvin, there lay concealed in almost all countries of Europe persons who adhered tenaciously to the principles of the Dutch Baptists. The true origin of that sect, which acquired the name Anabaptist, is hid in the remote depths of antiquity and is consequently difficult to be ascertained. That was a Lutheran historian, Mosheim. Waddington, who was an Episcopal fellow at Trinity College and a, an Episcopal preacher, in his church history of the early ages, um, on page 290, he writes these words, There are some who believe the Vadois or the Waldenses, uh, ha, uh, to have enjoyed the uninterrupted integrity of faith even from the apostolic era. Uh, a Dominican named Rainier Achot, who was a first member, of, who was first a member and then afterwards a persecutor of their communion, described them in a treatise which he wrote against them to the following purpose. There is no sect so dangerous as the Leonists, another name for the Waldenses, for three reasons. First, it's the most ancient, some say as old as Sylvester, and others as old as the apostles themselves. Secondly, it is very generally disseminated. There's no country where it has not gained some footing. Thirdly, while the other sects are profane and blasphemous, this one retains the utmost show of piety. They live justly before men and believe nothing respecting God that is not good. Only they blaspheme against the Roman church and the clergy and thus gain many followers. And uh, so the last one I want to read is a Methodist historian. Uh, there's much more, but I'll just read this one at a time past gone. Uh, John Ridpath, Methodist historian, says this, I should not readily admit that there was a Baptist church as far back as 100 AD, though without doubt there were Baptists then, as all Christians were then Baptists. <laughs> so that's a Methodist historian uh, telling you that. So I have uh, volumes more of quotes from folks that were outside of our circles that uh, in moments of uh, unguarded honesty would say things like that. So we'll uh, go into some more detail and we're going to uh, look at uh, some of the scriptural reasons why we do hold that God has uh, maintained uh, his hand in his churches from that time until this, until he comes again. Let's go ahead and, and uh, get down to our knees. We'll have a word of prayer. I'll just call on one tonight to word our prayer since I went over my uh, time a bit there. So we'll do that uh, this evening and just... Uh, Ask the Lord's uh, blessing on the rest of our uh, week, if we're able. Uh, let me ask uh, uh, Ryan, go ahead and pray for us, will you, tonight?